0: We are in 1 Peter, you can turn there or flip, however you get there, 1 Peter chapter two. And I want to do something, we're gonna do our cardio, it will be very short and easy, but I want you to see something that, that the author, Peter, does. Okay, so I want you to raise your hand and once you've raised your hand, keep it up, it'll only be like 15 seconds, to see how many people raise their hand for this. So I'm gonna ask you a question, every time I hit on it, you raise your hand. Who here has built a home? Raise your hand. Who here has built a chicken coop? Raise your hand. Who here has built a fort? Raise your hand. Who here has put down pavers? Keep your hands up. Raise your hand. Who here has done a remodel project? Raise your hand. Okay, look around. It's almost all of us, right? This is Peter. Peter uses extremely easy metaphors. He is salt of the earth, he's a normal guy, and so his conversation, what he talks about is salt of the earth, normal stuff. So he's gonna use this metaphor, this construction metaphor, to help us see, I think, one of the most important things that you're supposed to see. So we're gonna do the first eight verses, and there's like three movements. It's experience, it's exclusion, and then it's realignment. And they're amazing, so let's go. First Peter. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, longing for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Number one, experiencing God's goodness. Peter grabs the metaphor of a baby. Everyone in here began life as a baby. You might have a PhD now, that's awesome. But at one point, you were a babbling, puking, peeing baby. And babies, and this is a real key to understanding Peter, babies require something. They require community, right? Babies don't have their own condos to go home to. They require community. They require connection, right? They require food and connection. And what he says in this little text is, like a baby desires spiritual milk, you and I are to be desiring... God's word. So what you hold in your hand or what you've turned on on your phone, the book that we hold, it's 3,500-year-old technology. Here's our tendency today. We look at old things now as, well, we're better than them. We've advanced beyond them. So now there can be a tendency in the life of the believer to look at other things to supplant God's word. I would say be very careful of that. Be very careful. So we have the new God in the world and it's called science. Like we really lean on science now. But has science ever been wrong? Yes, science has been wrong. So we have a family friend who's been a friend for the time I was like knee high to a grasshopper. And she, when she had her babies, she's 80 years old now, She was given a shot and it dried up her mammary glands so that she could feed her baby's formula. Because when she was having babies, science had figured out formula and formula was better than God's plan. What have we found since then? Yeah, that was a really big mistake. Really big mistake, right? Or me growing up, when I was a kid, like most of my friends had their tonsils taken out. Like it was just, yeah, you just get your tonsils taken out. Well. Do we do that anymore? No. Because we found while tonsils, yeah, they can get strep and some other problems, tonsils are your first line of defense against a lot of infection, that they're actually there for a purpose. So we don't do that anymore. Or here's one of my favorites. After World War II, the engine of the world started to kick up. And we started having this stuff called processed food. And so when science was looking at processing food, they found that a lot of like Natural food had this component in it that you could not digest, that had no calories to it, and they're like, why is that in there? Let's pull it out. That component, we call it fiber. So a lot of like processed food that was old, they just pulled all the fiber out. And what you ended up with was a Hostess Twinkie. Superfood, right? 1950s superfood. Wonder bread, right? Just white, nothing in it, bread, all right? Well, here's what they found about fiber. Fiber is really important. That when you eat like something sweet, it's the fiber that actually slows down the absorption of sugar. And so instead of getting like this massive hypoglycemic spike, and then the subsequent drop where you fall asleep on your desk, and your boss is like, what happened to you? And you're like, I didn't have any fiber, man, sorry. Fiber slows all that down. Makes it so it absorbs correctly. But even more than that, it's fiber in food that as it goes through your digestive system, it's actually scraping the walls of your digestive system and it's scraping off precancerous cells and getting them getting them out of your body. That fiber is a massively important thing. Right? So we got to be careful about this idea that we can have as 2020 people that we've moved beyond this book. I would patently disagree that for 2,000 years, it has been this book right here that has been the way baby Christians have matured. And it's this book right here that have kept mature Christians from acting like babies. So you never leave it. We need scripture. So if you've been at Edgewater, here's what you know. Sundays and Wednesdays, we put a high, high value on the teaching of God's word. Because it's been the way for 2000 years that babies have matured and mature people have been kept from being babies. And when you're reading the Bible, here is the thing Peter says that you have to get. And if you miss this, the Bible does not make sense. So he says this, it's verse three, it's brilliant. If indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. What is taste? He doesn't say, no, God is good. He says taste. Taste is sensory language. Taste is experience, right? I'll try to explain it like this. Back in 1999, I went to Vanuatu and I was a missionary over there. And I got to teach the Bible at this Bible college with all these guys that were my age and just totally fun. But before I went over there, part of my preparation was to read this book, and it was called The Spirit of the Rainforest. And it was about tribes in the Amazon rainforest um, and just the demonic realm that was there. And it, like, just reading the book made the hair on my neck stand up. You're like, whoa, this is hardcore. So now I go to Vanuatu, which is jungle and primitive. It's one of the least developed nations in the world. And I'm in a grass hut, no electricity, no running water, 20 feet from the jungle. So I remember day two, I go to sleep that night. I wake up and I have to use the bathroom. And I'm like, oh no. Because somehow I thought the grass around the hut just was protection. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, but it just felt like, oh, I don't want to go outside of my grass hut. But I had to go. So I put my headlamp on. I went out the front door and I turned and I looked at these big giant jungle trees that were over just 20 feet from my hut and there staring back at me was all of these big red eyes. I did not need to go to the bathroom any longer. That was taken care of. Here's what was staring at me. Here's a picture of one. They're called flying foxes. They have a wingspan of six feet. They're huge and they're all over the place, and they're hanging in this tree, and that's what I saw. Okay, so, my knee van friends loved to eat flying foxes. It was the delicatessen of the day. So we'd be sitting there, chatting, having a good time, and one of them would just jump up because they saw a flying fox. They'd grab a stick, and they'd run them down, and then they'd wing them, and joy for dinner, right? I have this knowledge. My friends there told me time and time again, Matt, these are the best tasting thing in the world. You've gotta try one. I have all the knowledge in the world, but I've never experienced it. I refuse to eat them. I said, I prefer fish, thank you very much. So when I'm sitting there and a flying fox goes over me, guess what does not happen to me? I'm not moved by it, I don't jump up and pursue it, why? Because I've never experienced the good delicatessen, which is flying fox. My buddies though, man, the moment they see one, they can't help themselves, they have to go get it. That's the idea here. It's you've tasted something, sensed something, experienced something, not knowledge, because knowledge doesn't move you. It's experience, it's taste, that's what moves you. So Peter here is saying something brilliant. He's saying, when you're reading this book from Genesis to Revelation, What you're supposed to get is this. You're supposed to get an experience that God is good. Do you know experientially that God is good? Because if you look at the context here, chapter one ends with this. And this word is good news that was preached to you. Verse two is like babies desiring spiritual milk, drink this book. Verse eight, they stumbled because they disobeyed the word. It's word-centric. So in that context, if you read verse one, which is put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, part of it has to be toward God's word. Have you ever had malice towards God's word? Have you ever read a passage or heard a message where you're like, you're sitting there arms crossed fighting God's word? Because maybe it crosses you. Maybe it says that you can't do something that you want to do. What do you mean I can't sleep with my girlfriend? What do you mean I can't cheat my business partner? What do you mean I can't sell that car I know has, that has the bad tranny? What do you mean I can't do that? Right, it begins to cross you. So you have to, in order for this world to work, in order for the book to work, you have to come away with this. God is good. God is good. You have to believe in his goodness and experience his goodness for this book to work. And I'll try to explain it like this. So, eight years ago, I come home from work. I check the mail. There's a letter in the mail from Evergreen Federal Bank. At that time, we did not bank with Evergreen Federal. I open it up, inside is, hey, thank you for opening a new account with Evergreen Federal. The name on the account was my wife, Charity Heverly. And there was a deposit of $250 into that account. And I had no idea about it. I do marriage counseling a lot. That is a giant red flag. When your spouse is opening up a bank account and putting money into it without you knowing about it, that's like a giant red flag. So I'm like, what in the world? So I walked in, I'm like, hey, uh, sweetie, I I, I just got this letter here. And she looked at it, she goes, oh, it's no big deal. I'm like, it is a big deal. That's why I'm showing it to you. And this is what she said to me. She said, I'm not talking about it and you have to trust me. That's red flag number two in a marriage. (laughs) I'm not talking about it and you just have to trust me, right? But here's the thing. I know my wife is good. And so I trusted her. So two weeks later, I'm blindfolded, and it was my 40th birthday, and I'm brought right over here to the Evergreen Federal Bear Hotel for a surprise birthday party. And only members of Evergreen Federal get to use the Bear Hotel. Here's the deal. God is gonna do stuff like that to you in your life. Where you like get letters, you're like, what in the world, God? Read the Bible. Look at what happened to Job. Look what happened to Paul. Look what happened to Peter. Look at happened to Abraham, take your son, your only son. I mean, just read the Bible. Over and over, God asks people to do things that make zero sense at all. And if you do have not tasted that he is good, then you'll run from him. The big story of the Bible is so simple to me. And it's why if you've been at Edgewater for any time you know this, I repeat this over and over, that God is good and he is generous. That's the big story of the Bible because there's a satanic lie that's whispered into your heart all the time, and the satanic lie is God is not good, and he's not generous, that he is holding out on you. It's the lie of Genesis chapter three to Eve. If you could only eat of that tree, Eve, your eyes would be opened. You're to everything you want. And it's the same lie he gives to all of us all the time. If you could only eat of that tree of success, if you could only eat of that tree of sin, if you could only eat of that tree of money, if you could only eat of that tree of your reputation, if you could only eat of that tree of a different spouse, you'd be happy. It's the same lie. Whispered time and time again. And the antidote is so simple. No. God is good and God is generous and I've experienced his goodness and generousness. Do you know, experientially, that God is good and generous? My recommendation now to people is this, start a goodness of God journal, where you are just writing down the things that happen in your life, week by week, month by month, year by year, where you just see God's goodness and generosity, because there's coming a Job moment for you. It's coming for all of us. The valley of the shadow of death, when you don't understand, when you can't figure it out, and you've gotta go back to that and say no, No, I know that God is good and he is generous. He's generous. And what Peter's gonna do in the rest of this book is really to say, tough times are coming, Christian. And he knew about tough times. Caesar Nero was on the scene when he wrote this and Caesar Nero was gonna begin to burn Christians like candles in his garden. Tough times are coming. I don't know where we're going as a country or the world right now, but we might have tough times coming. And if you have not rooted yourself in an experience of how good God is, those waves will crash over you and take you out. You need to taste that the Lord is good. And he gives us actually two weathered storms that we're all gonna have to face. Number one is this. It's this. You get excluded to be included in a new community. Check this out, verse four. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're rejected into a new community. So if you're here in First Peter chapter one, that's what we looked at. That we're wanted rejects, right? We're rejected from this world, exiled from this world, but brought into a new world. And here's what God's doing. With you and me, he's building a new temple. But he uses this term, living stones. Are stones alive? No, right? It's a crazy metaphor. So God has chosen this. I'm choosing living stones to make my new temple. Could you imagine working with living stones? How bad would that be, right? You pick one up, no, don't put me there. I do not wanna be next to that guy. Do not put me over there. It's dirty and smelly, nasty. Put me over here, right? It'd be impossible. That's what's God, that's God's challenge, by the way. Part of the challenge of Christianity is we're living stones and we're being put together. You ever been rubbed wrong by another Christian? You ever disagree with another Christian? There's a saying, the only difference between a Christian and a terrorist is you can negotiate with the terrorist, (laughs) right? And sometimes the very fact of where God has placed us next to another sharp-edged Christian is, Matt, that's the best thing in the world for you. Do you trust that I'm good? Do you trust that I know what I'm doing? Submit to it, because it's living stones being built up into this brand new thing, this brand new house. So put away your malice and your slander and your envy and all that garbage and submit to my goodness as I put you together and make a brand new temple that we are becoming this new Eden, right? Genesis three is we're exiled out of God's place, so the world is in exile, but now you and I have been exiled out of exile. What's a double negative? We're home now. We're home now and the home is here you and me, the stones that God is putting together in this brilliant new thing called his temple, okay? And here's where he gets brilliant. This is my favorite metaphor. Verse six, for it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. We're aligned with Jesus. So the metaphor is this Jesus is the cornerstone. So I don't know if there are stonemasons in here, or if you've ever done the foundation or ever built anything. The very first stone you lay, or the first form board you lay, every other board, every other stone, every other part of that house lines up with that first stone you lay, that first board you put, right? It's the most important one. If it's out of alignment, every other board will be out of alignment because you key off that first starting point. Everything orients itself to the cornerstone. This is what Peter is saying with this brilliant metaphor. In the life of the believer, you and I are to be lined up with Jesus. That's the goal. He's a cornerstone. Every other living stone gets its orientation, its line gets it from Jesus. So I'll give you two verses for this that explain it theologically. Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. Your destiny, I can tell every single believer's destiny in here is to be conformed to the image of the Son, to have your life lined up with His. Or 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to the next. The goal of the believer is simple. Have your life aligned with Jesus. Well, Matt, what happens when you're out of alignment? Here's what happens to you. So back in 1994, I'd worked in Alaska for the summer, I was heading back to college. I did not have a vehicle, had a buddy who said, I'll give you a ride. He had a 1965 Ford van. So. Myself, another friend, and him, we get in the van. It was late on a Friday night. I had to be in school on Monday. And we start driving from here up to Corvallis. Well, we hit that big downhill into Winston and his van blew up. So we coasted to the bottom. There's a river right there. We spent the night by that river on the side of Interstate 5. So I have lived in a van down by the river. It's a bummer, All right? Next morning, it's Saturday morning. I'm like, I gotta get to school. So I put my stuff on, get my backpack on, I put my thumb out, I hitchhike into the greater Metroplex, which is Winston, Oregon. As I'm driving into it, I see this 1983 Toyota four-wheel drive truck with 36-inch tires and a six-inch lift kit on it that had been rolled, because you can't put a Toyota that tall. So I'm like, well, stop. So a guy let me out, I go over, I'm like, how much do you want for it? It was a great deal. So I bought the truck, packed up my stuff, told my buddies goodbye, and headed to school. The only problem with that truck was this. Because of the big tires and the big lift kit, and it had been rolled, it wanted to, if I let go of the steering wheel, boom, I'd be in the ditch on the left. Like it just had this pull to the left. So when I drove it, I'd have to be just focused and holding on to that because the alignment was so bad. Like if I drove a long way from Grants Pass all the way up to Corvallis, I'd be white knuckled, peeling my fingers off of the steering wheel and like my forearms would be pumped. They'd be like Popeye. Actually, I kind of miss it now. It was a great workout. That's what happens when you're out of alignment with the king. You're white knuckling it. You're just, ah, gritted teeth. Life just doesn't seem to work right. If you know a stonemason, if there's a stone out of place, what do they do? Man, they start hammering it, pounding it. If your life feels like, man, I'm just getting pounded right now. Well, could it be that you're out of alignment? You and I, the goal of our life is to say, I need to be conformed to the image of the son. I need to align my values with the values of the king. What do those values look like? I think they would look like his mission statement. Jesus had a mission statement. This is a text I probably teach in every wedding that I do because I think it's so important for marriages. Listen to this. It's Matthew chapter twenty. Verse 26 through 28. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A life aligned with Jesus Will be full of servant serving and giving. A life out of alignment with Jesus will be full of selfish taking. To me there's the big division. Jesus did not come to take, he came to give. Jesus did not come to be served but to serve. And here's what I know. When you're aligned with Jesus, it says there's no shame. When I have given of myself and when I have served people, Man, there's just no shame. On the other side, when I've acted selfishly and took for my own glory, there's shame to that. There's no honor in it. And if you think about shame and like give your top five worst emotions you can feel, shame's way up there, isn't it? Like there's a, I call it a, there's a hangover with shame that lasts a long time. I'll give you an illustration of this. So I've been riding some motorcycles recently, and I've got motorcycle in the brain right now. So a long time ago, I bought a very fast motorcycle. People call them crotch rockets, murder cycles, whatever you wanna call them. It was 900cc, had a whole bunch of horsepower, went ri- ridiculously fast. They just go ridiculously fast, they're insane. So I have a buddy, He had a shop right down here called Performance Fabrication. So I got the motorcycle, and I wanted to show it off to him. It was a January day, one of those clear Januaries where it's sunny, but like 28 degrees, remember those? They're awesome. And so on the pavement that hit, the sun hits, it's dry, but in the shade, it'll be icy. So I go down there and you pull into the parking lot of performance fabrication and it's just peel outs everywhere because it's horsepower, it's all about horsepower. So I'm there, I'm talking to Steve Fitchy and we're all done. And in that moment I decided I need to be biblical right now The Bible says to become all things to all men. To the Jew, become like a Jew. To the Greek, become like a Greek. To those under the law, as those under the law. To those outside of the law, like those outside of the law. So to performance fabrication, I need to peel out. Right, that's biblical. (laughs) So I start revving that thing up. I pull on the front brake. And Steve's like, dude, be careful. Because my front tire was about six inches from the shaded part. And I'm like, bro, I got this. So I rev it up, dropped the clutch, and I'm burning rubber. And then my front tire went forward about six inches, hit that ice, and the bike just went boom, on the ground, slid across the ice about 20 feet. So I wrecked at .2 miles per hour. I'm telling you, there was a cloud of shame over my head. Every time I saw Steve for a month after that, I'd be just like, oh, I know, I know, I know. I looked at my bike with a scrape on the side. Ugh, shame. There's shame, it's one of the worst. In life, when we are out of alignment with the king, you will feel shamed. When you're selfish and taking, you will feel shame. Be in line with the king, because you get, it says here, no shame, and you get honor. How good is that, right? So right now we are exiled from this culture as believers, and I'm kind of glad about that. And the good news is we're brought into a new community, living stones next to us. And if we'll put away our malice and our slander and all that and say, okay, God, I trust that you have me with these believers in the way that I'm supposed to be, and I'm gonna serve and give to them, I'm telling you, life is brilliant. We're becoming a new Eden, a new kind of humanity that acts differently towards other people, that does things in a different kind of way, and it's amazing and awesome. And here's what you should be feeling in your heart. It's Romans chapter eight, verse 15. It says this, you have received, have the spirit of adoption. You belong to him. You're my new community. You're my family. As sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, That is a chosen term. That's a term of endearment. That's a term of closeness. Not dear heavenly father, it's papa, papa. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You're in, you've got shalom. And if children, then heirs. That you and I are sons and daughters of the king. And we are going to be inheriting this coming kingdom. That's what alignment with the king brings. God's spirit speaking to us, adoption. God's spirit speaking to us. You are on papa level with me. God's spirit speaking to us. You are joint heirs of the coming kingdom. I'm telling you, there's nothing more brilliant in the world than that. Because now you're aligned with history. You're aligned with the king. But Peter is practical. So he gives a warning. Here's the warning. If you're not, here's the warning, verse seven. But for those who do not believe, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It doesn't matter if you believe in him or not, he is the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Jesus is the king. My faith in him or my lack of faith in him does not change the fact that he is the cornerstone of all creation, period. That there's coming a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, period. But if I choose to reject him, he's not my cornerstone. He becomes... A rock of offense. He's either your cornerstone that you're saying, I align my life with him, or Jesus will be the rock that offends you. We have a song, Rock of Ages, and it's great. We probably need a song, Rock of Offense. Because if you read the story of Jesus, he is an equal opportunity offender. He offends the liberals. When he says this, I am the way, I am the truth, And I am the life. And no one gets to the Father but by me. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ, right? Liberals don't like that. They want all roads to lead to heaven. They want everyone to make it there. I want everyone to make it there, but there's only one road. There's only one road. And we already know religions, all religions can't be right because they contradict each other. Christianity says, Jesus is the only begotten, eternal son of the father. But around the dome of the rock, it's written, God has not begotten, nor does he beget. One of those is right, and one of those is wrong. They can't both be right. I lived in Vanuatu. I met men there who, because of their religion, they used to eat their enemies. They were cannibals until about 1950 in Vanuatu. right? Christianity says, love your enemies as yourself. Their religion said, eat your enemy. That's different. That's a very different invitation to dinner. What does this mean? Are we on good terms here, right? They can't all be right. So it offends the liberals. It offends, Jesus offends the conservatives because he says this, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. And the conservatives are like, "Ah." He offends the moralists in John chapter eight when he finds the woman caught in the very act of adultery and he says, woman, I do not condemn you. In fact, that was such an offensive message that for a while, John chapter eight was actually pulled out of the Bible. Did you know that? Because the argument was this, well, that will give women the excuse to commit adultery on their husbands. To which I'm like, if your wife is looking for an excuse to commit adultery on you, John eight is not your problem. You got other bigger issues. So it offends the moralists. Jesus offends the fundamentalists. In Luke chapter seven, he's having dinner with the Pharisees, the fundamentalists of the day. And while he's there, a woman of the night, a prostitute comes in and begins to wash his feet with her hair and her tears. And Jesus does not stop her. And they were offended at Jesus. I can get that. It'd be like you going to your hero's house, whoever that might be. Billy Graham, if he was still alive, or Chuck Smith, or Tim Keller, or John Maxwell, or John Piper, or John MacArthur, or John Corson, and you go there, and he's got a prostitute giving him a massage, what would you think? You'd be like, oh, wow, people sure are friendly here. Right, I get it. The cross offends all of us, because it says there is nothing that you can do to make your way back to God that there's no human effort there's no righteous act you can do there's no donate a kidney that will merit god's salvation i can go on and on and on and on jesus will either be your cornerstone that you say my life must align with him or he'll become a rock of offense something he says will offend you and here's what happens when he's no longer your cornerstone but he's a rock of offense it says twice you'll stumble. You ever feel like life is stumbling? You can't gain the traction that you think you should have? Your dreams and your passions as a kid, just keep, they just keep, you keep fumbling them. You can't seem to get to them. Well, guess what? It might be that you're out of alignment with the king, the cornerstone of creation. And here's the good news. The good news is this you can come to him as a baby. We all came to Jesus the same way, as babies. What do babies have to offer? Full-time employment, no benefits, no pay. Dirty diapers, already chewed up food that they give back to you. A black hole financially for decades, that's what they have to offer. Screaming at 2 a.m., they have nothing to offer. And that's what you and I have to know when we come to Jesus, we have nothing to offer. But Jesus says, come just as you are. And I'll accept you just as you are. That he's not looking for something in us. That the Bible says this, Jesus loves us because he's chosen to set his love upon us. We love people because of something they give us. They're beautiful, they're kind, they're funny, we like them, whatever. Jesus says, I love you because I decided to set my love upon you, period. And the good news in that is this, if Jesus decided to love us simply because he wants to, then that love is never gonna change. Even if I lose my characteristic, or I'm not funny anymore, or I lose my beauty, or lose my whatever, it doesn't matter, because that's not why God set his love on us. He loved us because he chose to love us. That's the good news. That's this text. Man, make sure your life is aligned with Jesus. No shame, honor. Spirit of adoption, conform to him, it's brilliant. So here's what we do every Sunday to remind us that Jesus is the cornerstone. We take communion. It's coming to the table, and we've lost it today because we just eat meals with anybody. 2,000 years ago, you ate meals with people that you said, you're my crew. See, when you come to the table, here's what's happening. You're having a meal with the king, the cornerstone the creator of everything. And he says, you're my crew. And then we do prayer after we sing one song. There are people up here that wanna pray for you because here's why. It's reminding you of God's compassion. He knows we're babies. He knows we make messes in our diaper. He knows we yell at 2 a.m. And yet he says, I love you and I'll heal you and I'll align you and I'll change you. And then we offer baptism. Baptism is the command of Jesus. Go into all the world, make disciples. How? By baptizing them and teaching them all of my commands. It's acts over and over. Repent and be baptized. Change your mind about how you thought about God, that he was this ogre that did not like you. No, taste that he's good. Put on the jersey, identify with team Jesus. That's what baptism is. And every Sunday we offer that because it's this continual acknowledgement. Jesus, align me with you today. Align me with you. So grab communion. Jesus, we take the bread. And each of us, Lord, as we partake in this, we want our lives to be conformed to your image. We want to taste your goodness. I pray for each believer in here this day. I pray that this week they would taste that the Lord is good. That you love us because you love us. And every good and every perfect gift is from you. That your spirit would be sent into ours to bear witness. The spirit of adoption. That we were kids of the king, heirs of the coming kingdom. So we eat of that this day. Let's eat together. And Jesus, we hold the cup. Cup of forgiveness, the cup of cleansing, the cup of celebration, because you said that you would not drink of this cup again until you drank it anew in the kingdom. That it's our hope. We see the world crumbling that a new heaven and a new earth are coming, that all that's evil, all sickness and all death and all rape and all evil is gonna be squished into a ball and thrown into a lake that's called fire, where it will be dissolved and done with. And we will live in harmony, in alignment with you, our King, as joint rulers through eternity, serving each other, giving, loving, partaking, so I pray that right now you would send some of that kingdom into every heart. That where we go, we would be outposts, examples, sneak previews of your coming kingdom. Selfless, giving, kind, truthful. So would you cleanse us? Would you forgive us? Would you cure us? Would you align us with yourself, we pray? Let's drink of the cup. Amen.